Yo, yo, yo. It's episode 60 of Crackle Comics Weekly Reviews. Guys, 60 episodes for... Actually, I mean, it's over 60 if you factor in the the other special episodes we've done. But hey, 60 episodes for weekly stuff. That's that's pretty good, guys. Give, give yourself a pat on the back. I'm Mike alongside with... Daniel. And Vincent. And we're we're back to doing current books this week. We took a we took a break last week and did a, a retro roulette, which was fun. But we have some some pretty big books, new releases out this week, at least uh, two that I enjoyed. But overall, gentlemen, how's the week? Anything to report? Anything you want to talk about? Endless suffering. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I worked a thirteen-hour uh, day on Wednesday. Okay. Eight a.m. to nine p.m. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I was pooped. I just figured out how to sleep. Otherwise, the week wasn't that bad. I have the problem of my sleep cycle just endlessly is in flux. So there'll be four weeks straight where I can't stay up past like 1030. And then there's like four weeks where I can't get to bed until I'm like, I'll still lying awake around like three, five in the morning. So that that's that's fun, but overall, uh, I am doing well, uh, and sounds that you guys are too. Um, I mean, Dan, you showed it off, but also it's a you know audio medium, but so no one can see that you're drinking out of a marble glass. But overall, uh, if we have nothing else to say, we'll top it into our first book, which is uh, Vince has this one. Correct. The other history of the DC universe, number three, by John Ridley and Giuseppe Camicoli. So in this issue, we're moving fully into the 1980s with Katana. She's the cover character and kind of the focal point in this issue. She first appeared alongside the formation of the Outsiders in 1983, but obviously through the years, a lot of it in the Outsiders, she has had an extensive backstory developed. And so this touches, initially, there's kind of a little bit of touching on the gender norms of Japan, which as far as I know, everything that's being stated here is totally accurate and probably, you know, Ridley, just in case, or either has in the past or and or for this researched it further to back it up. But it does feel slightly different for him to be speaking on, you know, Japanese culture, you know, mores as opposed to kind of the African-American perspective for obvious reasons. So I'm not quite sure how a Japanese reader may take this. Then as we move forward, uh, there's a Mazzuccelli a Batman Year One homage page, which basically has Katana introducing Batman as a character from her perspective. And she kind of questions his no-killing credo a little bit because she's like, this guy brutally tortures people all the time and just like leaves them bleeding out in the street, but he doesn't kill them. Um, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, though. And so the, outs- the outsiders, you know, they all converge in Markovia and do their thing, which is basically their first mission. And then Batman is like, hey, we should stick around because I don't like the Justice League and I'm going to boss around you losers. Uh, and as they return to the U.S., uh, there's a lot here on the character. I think her name's Halo, who's one of the... Yeah, it's Halo, because I get her mixed up with another character called Looker. Um, from the Outsiders, she's not really known in any other context in D.C., just as an Outsiders character. And Bruce just kind of like... And she has like memory issues and things and emotional issues and things like that. So Bruce just kind of like forced Katana to become her like surrogate mother. So there's a little bit of that and a lot of that character's history as well weaved in. And there's a lot of history on anti-Asian and Asian American actions in the United States. So this book 
in particular. And, you know, considering when I imagine he wrote this, not at all like intentionally lined up, but this is pretty timely given, you know, a lot of things that have been in the news recently. Then as it's connected to Geoforce, another member of our Outsiders, we delve back into the Teen Titans, which was the major focus of the first issue, if I recall, which had, uh, which focused a lot on Mal Duncan and Karen Beecham, I think. Last name might be wrong, but AKA Bumblebee. So we see, we delve a little bit into Tara and her controversial relationship with Deathstroke. Without getting too into it, I'll just say that Ridley takes a slightly different perspective on the matter, um, kind of a different reading of the original material, just as others have. I mean, Christopher Priest took a different reading. You know, people have tried retcons or they've tried, you know, looking at it from a different angle and stuff, um, depending on what kind of, you know, statement you're, what kind of point you're trying to make or, or story you're trying to tell, because it's obviously a very complicated and problematic part of DC history. Then we go through Batman leaving the Outsiders, their stint without him, and then their 90s revival when they had characters like Sebastian Faust on the team. And then we get a bunch of the death and return of Superman, which is kind of interesting because all these issues, if I recall, have also paralleled how these characters kind of react to Superman uh, and other kind of more focal point major characters in this universe. Then we basically quickly super speed through a bunch of other eras by just showing little shots of them on Polaroids. We see the 2000s kind of pseudo outsiders, which is really more like a Titans team under initially under a writer, Judd Winnick. And then that evolved into an actual outsiders book. And then Batman eventually rejoined it and it became Batman and the outsiders uh, like uh, Pete Tomasi and Dan Zadio wrote sections of that title. And then Katana was on the Birds of Prey at the beginning of the New 52. And then the Suicide Squad as you move later into the New 52 and Rebirth. But the thing is on that page, like the Polaroids are out of order. I don't think it's supposed to be literal. And like, he's not changing the order, you know, in his headcanon. And then the final page is basically just straight up Katana in the exact costume from the David Ayer Suicide Squad movie, which is kind of interesting, but kind of weird. I guess that's like her current take. I have no idea when she last appeared, you know, in the current comics, probably in some Suicide Squad mess. So I feel this issue didn't quite as well weave together the real world commentary slash history and the DC half, half of it, but it was still very good. And, uh, and as I said, incredibly timely and a lot of things to think about and reflect on both, again, on the real world angle and in the DC angle. Ultimately, this issue was a really cool walkthrough of The Outsiders, uh, you know, created and written pretty much in all the major iterations that are like truly legitimately The Outsiders by Mike W. Barr. And then the main artists along the, it's basically kind of like three runs under Barr. The main artists are basically Jim Aparo, Alan Davis, and Paul Pelletier. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Unfortunately, though, DC Today has only reprinted the era with Batman, of course in three hardcovers. So that leaves the 1985 to 1988 and then the 1993 to 1995 eras untouched. I think this might be the final ship other history. I'm not 110% certain, but I think it is. Because I mean, at the end here, like I said, it pretty much gets us caught up to Rebirth. Um, it would be interesting. I mean, you could totally do more as you could do a different season. You don't have to keep moving forward because we're at the present, but you can look at other characters and it kind of 
you know, look at the other history. So I really isn't enjoy there, it overall. Isn't there one more with Renee Montoya? There is one with her as the question on the cover. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're probably right. Like I said, I'm not sure, but that sounds uh, that sounds exciting. So I'm looking forward to that. I just wasn't sure because each issue, like the previous issues, they've gone from like a point in time forward and then mostly stopped, and then each issue has kind of picked up where the last one left off. And I guess this is mostly focused on like the 80s and 90s. So like technically it doesn't delve deeply in in 2000s and that's and like the very late 90s and 2000s that's going to be I guess that will work with Montoya but we do see a little bit of the present here so that makes sense and maybe that'll be the final issue I'm not really sure but like there's tons of other characters you could do here based on like the very loose premise um, you know you could do like a Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle issue would be very interesting especially you know a lot of this issue is talking about immigrant experiences and things like that and that would be very relevant over there uh, there's tons of other characters i would be very interested to just get, just give me more of this if, if ridley wants to they could do a second season let's just uh hope they don't have you vote for it on a twitter poll which is what dc's current deal is right now with trying to get ideas greenlit but i'll take us into our second book which is strange adventures number nine tom king mitch garrods and evan doc Steiner. the jla report on adam strange is out and it's kind of gray in the sense that it definitely confirms that adam did some horrible stuff but it also withholds details so it's like well what really did he do what does the public truly know but he basically he's being removed from the justice league anyway and this is all happening you know at the ongoing pick invasion which is taking place adam's trying to deal with it he ends up confronting batman in the middle of like this battle trying to help him out but he ends up having to save him when batman gets like shot from the through the shoulder and it gets knocked out. And then Adam's wife, Alana is basically running PR again and getting the side of there's kind of the stake of like the budding nationalism because Adam's a hero. Cause and trying to get the public on his side for respecting Adam as like this Patriot for telling the truth and not running from his actions. That's the, the kind of take that's going on here. Mr. Terrific is beginning to write like this letter to Alana to reveal the whole truth to her basically from what he knows. But in the flashbacks, again, we see Adam on a nighttime covert mission where he and his crew, he's like basically unleashes chemical warfare on the picks. And the closing moments here is a flashback to Adam and Alonra remembering their daughter. Uh, and also Adam also is like saying that, you know, there's another world where they'll see her again. So once again, still vague on what exactly happened to his daughter, but uh yeah also kind of gray areas here but i'm getting to where i think tom king's going with this three more issues we've essentially hit like the third act of this and then it'll wrap up and then i'll probably have to read all of it together together again in one straight shot through to catch the stuff i i missed just like you know watching a movie you'll pick up more the next time you watch it but Overall, this is still good. Uh, not a lot of Doc Shaner in this one. This is pretty much all uh, Garrett's from me and what I remember. But overall, uh, I like it. It's still pretty good. I'll cut to Dan for uh, the fourth issue of Black Cat. Black Cat number four, written by Jen McKay, art by Nina Bequeva, and colors by Brian Reber. So this issue is told in the perspective of the Queen Cat, a.k.a. Lindsay Hollister who has been after Black Cat since the night she stole a painting from the Frick collection, which I believe is harkening back to the first 
issue of the previous Black Cat series we had before the King and Black special series that came out a few months ago. So we kind of get a montage of how Lindsay came to know Felicia. Uh, she was working as a temp at this area, this Frick collection, and noticed her stealing the painting. And that's kind of how she was able to track Black Cat down by going after her lackeys, the two guys that are kind of like the muscle for Black Cat's operation. So she kind of tracks them down, ends up capturing um, the Black Fox, which I think we saw in the Black Cat annual last year, and uses some of these stolen paintings as bait to confront Felicia, which actually backfires because Felicia puts a tracking device on all of her captured items or her stolen items. So she's able to track down this queen cat and beat her pretty soundly. <laughs> Even going as far as taking a picture of the queen cat after she knocked her out and giving her the picture and like, put it on her wall in her room after she puts her back to bed, I guess, like in her apartment. And she also leaves her a note like, yeah, I guess you're my enemy now. I uh, can't wait to see you out there on the rooftops. So yeah, Black Cat's really kind of savage in this issue. And it really leaves us kind of having Queen Cat feeling pretty bitter. So this is kind of the second time we've gotten an allusion to this character. And obviously with the first series, it kind of got a little derailed with the King of Black stuff coming on. But um, I guess they're now going to this thing where I guess we're past the King of Black stuff now at this point. So I guess we're just going to explore this storyline and see where it takes us. Um, I'm excited. I think it's interesting. And I just love, like, you know, kind of, it's weird. The Black Cat mo um, movie <laughs> uh, series, but she's kind of like the antagonist in her own book. So I, th I find that interesting. So, yeah, definitely need to hop on, guys. Otherwise, you can wait for the complete collection that will come out in a year or two. Uh, but, yeah, definitely recommend this series. Jed McKay's doing a great job. Say, so Jed McKay has been the the guy for Dan for the last couple of months here. That's kind of been uh, the guy he's following because he, you know, he's reading Avengers Mech Strike 2, which is also Jed McKay. But we'll go from Black Cat to Batman Catwoman, sticking with the cat theme, I guess, uh, how we planned on the rundown. Tom King, Clay Mann, to Memorial Colors. Helena Wayne is going through, basically shaking down all the villains to find details about the relationship between Joker and her mother. The biggest being uh, a very Danny DeVito looking penguin who she goes to. And then all of the villains have like different answers, but some imply maybe Joker and Selena Kyle had some sick romance. Others imply that it's just, you know, only passing relations like, yeah, all the villains knew each other. But like, I never really saw them other than a passing conversation or not even a conversation. The interesting take here was like the more human villains. I thought that they had a more answer like that while the more sadistic and kind of crazy ones like victor zaz uh was inferring something much more romantic which was an odd uh just like an odd thing the whole deal here is though all of these people are villains to me and at only four issues into a 12 issue maxi they're all unreliable narrators we don't know who really to believe plus we don't hear what penguin tells helena which was the big kind of tease here so what 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 was the thing that penguin said because we see Catwoman uh, confront Penguin later. But lots of uh, Batman animated series throwbacks in this one, especially with Phantasm, the biggest being that she's holding Selina prisoner in the broken remains of Gotham's World Fair, which is 
where the climax of Mask of the Phantasm takes place, also uh, singing the, 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 I guess, the little tone theme that was going on in the uh, in the fair in the movie. But in the that's you know in the past present Stein because we we're still working with those three timelines. In the past, Selena tells Bruce that the Joker has hidden a bomb under basically what the Gotham City equivalent of the Rockefeller Plaza ice rink is, which takes them away from the party. And then, like, we see the end of this, Bruce confronting Selena, like, did you know? how? Like, how long did you know this was going to happen? And why aren't you being truthful? So that's her fallout, Bruce pressing Selena and where Joker is and why she's kind of protecting him and then her lashing out. So we're getting the dueling, you know, that's the aspect of the relationships who can Selena Kyle be more truthful and honest to the Joker or Batman, which I, which has kind of been the dominating force of the first four issues here. I, I would say for me, I'm still enjoying this, but very slow. Um, and I would go as far as that I'm teetering on possibly maybe dropping it and just waiting to read it all when it's done. It's also weird because, like, this first issue of this came out in December, and it seems the whole story is going to be set during that month. So now we're, you know, this was the final week of March. Books came out, you know, March 30th, 31st this week. So we're opening up with still uh, Christmas songs. <laughs> in the, but now we're, you know, in March, April, which is like, it, you know, functionally, thematically, you know, when you're reading it, it kind of doesn't work. But I'm not going to be a huge stickler in that. But other than that, like, I'm... You know, it is what it is. I mean, I'm enjoying it, but I don't know if I'm fully going to be sticking and recapping every issue of the series on the show going forward. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. Yeah, the whole Christmas theme's a little, I don't know, I guess it, I guess it is what it is, right? I'm not going to mark it too much. I mean, the art here is really great, though. It's still really top-notch. I love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, good. I mean, Clayman finding another way to put selena in underwear again is like i'm starting to roll my eyes a, a bit here but it wasn't as cheesecakey though i mean there's there was one shot where i was like yeah a little bit but not too bad um yeah. wasn't as bad as issue three best best flash page though is definitely the the cat killing the penguin <laughs> that's just that so was a fantastic that yeah. was a fantastic page. Well, bet, giving it best flash page, it's kind of competitive because I really like the double page one where it's, it's mostly Selena in focus has Catwoman on the roof and then Batman in the distance. Uh, if, if Clay, if, if Clay has ever released like a, you know, a relatively high res version of that without the lettering, uh, I bet that would be a lot of, you know, Catwoman fans desktop background or something. Yeah. I don't understand the religious, uh, I mean, the, uh, the Christmas thing, especially, I mean, all of them so far have also been religious. And obviously we know that it's not, I'm not, it's not like, I'm not saying, I don't know. And I'm not saying that Tom King is religious. I don't think that he necessarily is a ton, but we've seen a tiny bit of, of that kind of religious imagery or, or symbol, symbology or like themes in some of his other works. Uh, you know, like there was the one, I think that was his Batman black and white story was like that. Because um, yeah. so far, all these Christmas songs—they're also like a little bit more on the, you know, it's not Mariah Carey. It, these are the ones that you sing in church. And then with the Christmas and then Penguin and everything like that, you know, Mike mentioned BTAS type of references, but I was getting, you know, those couple pages in a row. Uh, you totally think Batman Returns? Uh, yeah, I thought the cheesecake was a little bit better here. Tone, you know, not as in your face. 
Yeah, I, there's, you know, there's the connection of like, do Joker and, you know, did Joker and Selena have something? But I'm, maybe I'm reading into, into it too much, but like, did, uh, like, did Joker cuck Bruce? Like, I'm, I'm just because I know like Tom King is liable to do something like this is, is what, like, what's your uh, over under on the huge twist being that Helena is the Joker's daughter? You think there's zero chance? I would doubt it. I have I have severe doubts that that would be the well, case. We already know, obviously, Helena, you know, this is future. It doesn't matter anything whatsoever. And, like, everything with Tom King right now and this series in, in particular, it's like, you know, and DC in general right now is like, we don't care about continuity. So, like, it's possible. Like, you almost wonder if, like, because uh, I was reading some Christopher Priest kind of deathstroke commentary recently this week um i wonder if they would have let him pull the deathstroke cucked bruce wayne move with uh damien if that story came out like in 2021 and then yeah I, one thing i think you mentioned this a little bit but i was kind of curious about this because there is a major point here the idea of like basically like all of the batman villains like all the super criminals of gotham like they're kind of like buddies and that's a theme, like you see that a lot in BT, like in BTAS, where like, you know, there's the one episode where I think it's a poker game, and they're Almost all like, yeah, like I killed I killed Batman, and, and I believe that's like very loosely based on an arc from like the 70s written by David Vern Reed, um, where like they think they think Batman's dead, and the villains have different takes, and each issue focuses on different ones. I don't know, like if you if you think about it. I'm not really sure if I really like the idea of like, you know, Mr. Freeze's buddies with Clayface. I don't, I didn't read it as that. I always felt that I always read it as like, they have a passing, you know, they know each other, but they're not like, you know, maybe not necessarily Victor is, is playing poker with Clayface, but maybe Mr. Freeze is, you know, playing poker with, you know, other villains or uh, Clayface definitely is playing poker with like Killer Croc, but. Of course, isn't Clayface supposed to be a good guy now? That was kind of a big thing in Rebirth that's just been abandoned. Well, no, I think I'm pretty sure they flipped that. Didn't we read? Wasn't it in Tomasi or something? I'm not sure. I think they already flipped that. They gave him, I'm I know sure he they left. Gave him turn. Run. I think they gave him like a really forced, kind of not fully explained heel turn. But I'm not. I'm not certain. I mean, again, this is in the future, so like, yeah, a hundred things in between. Yeah. Overall, like, I, I think I'm probably going to give it one or two more issues, but I, it's definitely, like, on that chopping block of, like, I don't think I need to talk about every issue. Uh, yeah, the, show. the one last thing I'll say, and then I think the next book is mine, is that the first issue in particular, like, I was very critical of it because I actually legitimately found it, like, hard to follow. Yeah. I don't think I've had that issue as much with at least the past two issues. Um, definitely this one. This one, there wasn't really any, like, really confusing, like, you know, multiple timelines on one page or things like that. It was a, it was a lot easier to follow. Guess my only question. Yeah. The, the first, I think everything since the first issue has been fine and following it. My only thing is what exactly is past and present now with is present phantasm having Selena or is that past? I think that's present and past would be Batman and Selena uh, tracking down the bomb or maybe intersecting there. That would be, that's, that's my only cross that I'm, that I would be wondering, but overall, like other than that, like I'm still enjoying it. It's still good, but 
You ready to talk about Man-Thing? Yeah. It's actually Avengers Curse of the Man-Thing. This is a one-shot kind of. It's basically the first issue of a Man-Thing series by Steve Orlando. This issue is drawn by Francesco Mobili. I don't know if he's on all of them. Uh, and it's strewn across basically a couple one-shots. Like there's an Avengers one. Um, the next one's Spider-Man. Who knows what else? And this is the first appearance outside of the X-Men of the group Horticulture, which were introduced in Jonathan Hickman's X-Men. So the great niece of one of those characters is really into like taking evolution and ecosystems into her own hands. It's kind of like a uh, kind of like a like when Poison Ivy goes really overboard villain schemes. That's kind of what she's doing, but it's more like supernatural magic, like not natural based. And yeah, she has some kind of magic based abilities, or and like her body glows with stripes. Uh, it doesn't fully make sense to me. And she simps hard for Man Thing, but like kind of the idea of him, she's gonna like use Man Thing to accomplish her goals. So she hunts him down by basically laying some bait and then skins him. She like rips off his like outer and then his like outer layer of plants and carries it around. And he just dissipates in nothingness. And then as she's kind of an action plan, mostly off panel, like we don't, you know, we don't see her like quote unquote pressing the buttons and setting the traps. Suddenly these huge plant growths crop up all around the world. And anyone who gets near them starts burning. And then there's people getting like infected and turned into monsters. And there's like things flying around. And then it becomes like an airborne burning thing where like seeds are landing on people's face and then catching on fire. So the Avengers split up to figure it out. And this is Jason Aaron's version of the Avengers, the current you know, flagship team. And I forgot She-Hulk was being referred to as Hulk still, even though I didn't think that was the thing, that was the premise in Aaron, I mean, the situation in Aaron's run, but I guess not. And she's also still in dumb mode, which I, I thought they fixed, but whatever. And then Captain America gets stuck in Man-Thing's subconscious and at first he fights all kinds of cap replacements. Like he fights Nuke and William Burnside and, and things like that. And he's helped out by Ted Salas because Ted Salas is kind of like a Captain America failed like reject because the backstory is that he was attempting to create, to recreate the super soldier serum and then, you know, crashed in the water and burned up and became a man thing. So Ted's house in the subconscious helps out Steve. And there might be a big retcon here about whether Ted actually created his serum, even though it was a screwed up serum in the first place. So it doesn't really matter. Overall, this was kind of meh. It's kind of sort of not a man thing story, even though like, I don't think the Avengers are going to be as prominent in the next issue. So like man thing is the through line, but I really don't like this version of the Avengers. The art was kind of rough. The next issue is Spider-Man and a, an appearance by the Lizard. So it's basically a throwback to Giant Size Spider-Man number five, which I believe we actually read or maybe just skimmed over for the Clone Saga show we did, even though it's like not remotely related to Clone Saga. It's just thrown into that one book for no reason. I mean, this is kind of cool, like, but I'm kind of, I'm tapping out. This is all I'm going to read. I don't, I don't care that much. Captain America number 28, written by Tanahasi Coates, art by Leonard Kirk, and colors by Matt Miller. So 
Uh, Alexa is talking to Sin or Cynthia, I guess, as she leaves to go to a warehouse of goons and I guess like people that are supporting the Red Skull. And one of them tries slapping her around and she actually beats the crap out of him and shoots him. So all these goons kind of buy into what she's trying to do and uh, follow her. So Cap is in the hospital after the bombing in the park and has a heartfelt discussion with a cop about his injured brother and, you know, kind of what their motivations were to be a cop and for Cap to become Captain America, obviously. So it's kind of cool to see that moment, kind of gives you some time to breathe. Uh, across the nation, Red Skull is sparking more and more mobs throughout the internet, um, well, through using the internet, by getting Americans to rise up and take their country back. Sound a little familiar? Uh, this is definitely a, a comic written in 2021. Um, back at the base, uh, Cap, Misty, Sharon, and Tony are dissecting the bomb that went off in the park, and they trace it to the next spot, courtesy of Agatha Harkness, guys. So, uh, WandaVision now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Kind of weird shoehorn there, as we discussed earlier before the show. But uh, at the protest, Cap is able to ambush Cynthia and seemingly puts her out of action uh, until she uh, Sin gets the upper hand and is able to regain her footing and throw a knife at Cap's side, which allows her and her goons to kind of team up on him and beat him up. Uh, she's able to get away through a helicopter, I think, and Cap is left to lick his wounds as he d talks with Sharon about what the Red Skull is going to do next and kind of how he's not really just a single en entity. He's a idea, a mentality that this mob has that he has to go tackle now, which is obviously going to be way tougher than going after just one person. So I really like where this is going. I, I do think the use of Red Skull here by uh, Coates is pretty interesting. The only thing I will say is the art at times here felt a little flat to me. I don't know. I, I don't know if Mike felt the same way, but other than that, very small gripe there. But other than that, I thought this was a really solid issue. And uh, as Vince mentioned with his book, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, accurate, you know, timely themes going on here in these books. So Mike, what did you think of this? Well, I'm I'm right there with you on the art. I think there's times Leonard Kirk's pencils look, you know, good, uh, but there's other times where faces look kind of flat and unfinished. That happens a lot in the talking scenes. The action scenes looked okay. Overall, I I like what Coates has done. It's it's been a very slow burn in the Coates run. This is wrapping up soon too. Um, this doesn't have too much longer to go. And then I'm wondering who Marvel's gonna get to take the next iteration of Captain America when they'll probably relaunch it with the new number one. But overall, I've been liking the Coates run. It's probably going to be a run that you're going to enjoy more when it's all collected and you can just sit down and read through it because it's pretty long wait between issues too. Uh, I think Coates is now definitely juggling the end of his, you know, long Black Panther saga and this. So I think each ones are kind of like trading off on time on waiting between issues, but yeah, I, I, all the Red Skull stuff's good. Like, that makes sense for, you know, the current climate, uh, how to weaponize Red Skull, try to kill the idea of, of Cap. I like that. Um, and then, you know, we'll slow build to the confrontation and see where it goes from there. But it also builds on the other things that we've seen in the run. Like, you remember back when Cap and Falcon and Bucky were, like, undercover and they had to fight uh, in, like, Adamsville, remember? Like, it, Sharon brings all that stuff up. It's like, you 
you can't just change it this way. You got to counter it in a, in a different sense. So I like how Coates is bringing all the stuff from his run and taking it to a head for what seems to be like, this is definitely like building to his third act because this is over pretty soon. But I wish that the art on this run would be better. Like I thought even when like Bob Q was drawing it, it didn't look exceptionally great to me. I wish this would have a, uh, you know, just some better art. Cause like, I remember the, when I jumped back on, like, I think this went from Lionel U to one of the Qberts to uh, Bob Q to now we're at Leonard Kirk, but there was also someone in between Bob Q and Leonard Kirk who we did not like, but I can't remember who that was. So overall shaky art, I think all throughout this run, but writing is good, but I'll take us into our next book, which is I think a pretty powerhouse in the art department. And the writing department. Beta Ray Bill number one. This is Daniel Warren Johnson on writing and art. Mike Spicer on colors, and the colors look great too. New series here, and this is one. This was, you know, I think when this was announced, me and Vince both went like, all right, this looks immediately intrigued both of us, but Vince can speak for himself when we break here to talk about it. But uh, this series picks right up out of uh, Donnie Cates' Thor run, where Beta Ray Bill is now acting as Asgard's master of war after had his brief battle with Thor, which ended with his hammer Stormbreaker being destroyed. So we are dropped right here in the middle of the King and black event as bill is leading this charge in the defense of Asgard with lady Sif. Awesome fight. They basically have to fight a null infected Fing Fang foom, which is pretty crazy. Some, some really fun, heavy metal like action here. Also, he receives the help from his sentient spaceship scuttlebutt. Uh, Thor arrives just in the right time to basically save the day, but then takes all the credit because everyone's, you know, talking about how great Thor is, which kind of pisses Beta Ray Bill off because he's done all the work. Later, they have this big feast of victory, and he's trying to rekindle his relationship with Sif, but leaves in self-disgust when he, because he, Stormbreaker's broken, he can't revert back to his humanoid form, so he's stuck in, in his eyes, his like gross horse form. But there, by the way, there's references because right now, if you're reading Thor, uh, Donald Blake sucked his power out. So he looks humanoid again. But this is taking place after that. So I appreciate the footnotes. So if you're confused, if you're reading both. But Johnson does reference uh, the most recent Thor arc here for that context. The simple explanation, like I said, is without Stormbreaker, Bill's locked into his horse form and unable to turn back to his humanoid form. He calls Scuttlebutt and is preparing to leave for the stars to find Odin where... He's going to try to have Odin make him a new hammer since Thor won't do it for him. And Thor confronts him about that on the way out. And he exclaims that, hey, I need to find myself. Being back in Asgard's only been reminded of his failures and embarking on this new journey will hopefully yield him becoming, in his own words, beautiful again. So we're going to take off on this big journey uh, through the galaxy with Beta Ray Bill, which that sounds pretty fun to me, especially with this, with the writing and art of Daniel Warren Johnson. So this was, uh, I really like this. I'm curious to see what you guys think. Weird, because I haven't read a lot of Beta Ray Bill stuff. It just feels weird seeing like him with his helmet off. Like <laughs> it just looks really derpy. I don't know what it is, but um, no, this was really solid art, amazing. Yeah, definitely going to be on for another issue here. The the whole scene with uh him and Lady Sif, um, I thought that part was really interesting at the end there. So yeah, this is really really cool. I'm excited. Yeah. The action here is freaking awesome. Uh, and then this the moments with Sif, pretty emotional, um, really connects you with Bill as a character. Uh, and then, yeah, like from Bill's perspective and in this issue, 
basically Thor's an asshole. And that's kind of like, I haven't read the actual Thor book in like 10 issues, but that's, that was kind of my interpretation when I was reading it, especially when he fought Bill. Yeah. And then, that's and then, comes off. yeah. And then, uh, if you pick up this issue, I, I 100% recommend reading the, uh, extra material in the back. There's a fascinating interview, but it's, but it's Daniel Warren Johnson actually interviewing Walt Simonson about not just Beta Ray Bill and Thor, but like basically like Simonson's whole career, uh, you know, how he started into comics and then like what it was like being a creator back in the day. And then like actual, like, I guess really substantive, you know, conversation between two artists, which, and it takes multiple pages. It's in columns. It's, it's something you don't really see in these books. Usually it's just some like, like fluffy, you know, editorial from the writer or the editor, or like a very fluffy interview between like an editor or marketing person without, you know, with a, you know, no name attached. And then one of the creators. So uh, totally worth reading that. Just wanted to point that out. Yeah, it's. It, I'm excited. It was definitely uh, one that I'll look forward to the next issue and hope it goes for a while. I think it's just a miniseries, though. It's not officially listed as an ongoing, but it seems that we're now in the era where anything is a success. It can immediately become an ongoing and out, spin out of a miniseries. But a book that was an ongoing, and now we get to just see its slow death, and this looks to be the finale of it, Vince, remember when you were excited for Ghost Rider and then it's this is this is pretty much the end of it. Yeah. So King and Black, Ghost Rider, written by Ed Brisson, art by Juan Fergari. Those were the creators on the Ghost Rider series. It was basically Juan Fergari and um can't think of his darn name, the the other dude. They were basically trading off on art back and forth. It was, it was uh, Juan Fergari and Aaron Cooter. Yeah, it could. So this is a very belated new issue, basically, of the series, but snuck in as an event tie-in. It's basically combining the status quos because it is tying into King of Black, but it's really just as an excuse to move things forward. Because it does, like, literally pick up pretty much directly from the last issue. So, like, that almost brings up bigger questions on the chronology because I'm pretty sure the last issue was, like, during the previous event, pretty much um it's been a while since then uh but you know for the king and black excuse they fight like a symbiote dragon nonsense johnny still has mephisto chained up trying to deal with the demon uprising led by lilith danny caretaker and blackheart show up and danny's still the spirit of corruption but he's officially given himself like an actual like quote-unquote superhero name he's death rider and the riders have some history with the symbiotes so like this is not like 110% forced. You know, there was the Spirits of Venom crossover in the 90s during the Danny Ketch run. And then there's the Circle of Four during during Rick Remender's Venom run, which was actually supposed to be a legitimate crossover with uh, the Ghost Rider book of that time written by, I think, Rob Williams, which starred Alejandro Reyes, I believe is the last name. But that book was canceled before they could do the crossover, so it ended up just being the stupid point, like point one, point two, point three issues of Venom. So yeah, the Ghost Rider has just been dogged by cancellations for a long time, with the with really the exception of like the Daniel Way, Jason Aaron chunk of Johnny Blaze, which you know lined up with the movies, I'm pretty sure. 
so basically, the conclusion they come to is, uh, you know, we were supposed to lead to this giant fight, but let's just let Mephisto go take care of everything off page, and Lilith is just going to get dealt with. If we don't see any of it, I guess it happens, because Mephisto sits right back on the throne. Though he does take a random symbiote with him, so, you know, theoretically there's a tease to do something in the future. This puts the toys back in the box. I think there's still at least one issue in Limbo, the one the which was also a one-shot, which was supposed to bring back Vengeance, with Howard Mackey also writing a story or co-writing. This ends, you know, this era of Ghost Rider on a whimper. Danny is still stupid Death Rider, and I have no idea how this will be handled in collections because, as far as I know, the collection, the second collection that's sitting on my shelf ended the series so like if they squeeze out like two more one shots over the next two years maybe they can force like four one shots into a collection i don't know or i'll just have to put mine in the shredder and they'll put out a complete collection in two years with the whole relatively short you know run uh i don't know this was all this is kind of what i said when the actual series ended it was kind of like very excited going in and then Pretty much not not at all what I actually wanted for the most part, and then it just like just due to sales, I guess you know losing completely losing momentum, just completely limping to the finale and not the ending that was intended or or that quote unquote fans deserve, etc. It's very disappointing. Yeah, I felt like there was a little commentary on that by Brisson and his writing right. here too. It's a very bittersweet issue because we. We came into this thing, we were like, we're both huge Danny fans. So, like, all right, Danny catches back. It's the first time we've seen him since, like, the 2000s. Oh, he's Death Rider. Like, I, but I grew to be like, okay, at least he's here. He's Death Rider, whatever. Like, at least he's helping out. But I guess this, I know how uh, Doctor Strange is visiting Mephisto with powers and Amazing Spider-Man now. I guess I have that to be like, oh, this is how this connects, but. Yeah, overall, like, I enjoyed the ending, but yeah, it's definitely a bittersweet ending, and hearing the, you know, it was, it seemed like it was building to, like, this giant War for Hell event, which would have probably been awesome, especially, I would would assume that there was going to be, you know, a Midnight Suns reunion somewhere in there, too, it definitely had that prime bit, uh, you know, bait for that, we had a, what was it, an Axe of Vengeance, also, like, pseudo-sequel there, like, it was hitting on all the the stuff you'd want to see, but you know, sometimes, sometimes it's just not meant to be. And hopefully Ed Briston will get his shot on the next thing he works on in the future, which is where I come out of it. Um, Juan for Gary's art, like it still looked good. Like there was a lot of good stuff in this, like uh, Johnny basically chained up Fisto, like drag him around on the highways. That stuff looked awesome. So overall, like, yeah, bittersweet, but I had fun with it. The one thing I'd throw out is like, you know, if they really wanted to try and prop this up, because I've mentioned this, they could have gone for an actual crossover with Venom. You know, we see them grab the symbiote here and there's like loose references to that. But like, if they had snuck in like a two-issue crossover with Donny Cates' Venom, you know, how many people pick up an issue of Ghost Rider and then how many people stick around? Uh, just a random thought, you know, as we say goodbye. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's something, especially with how Venom sells right now, it's something that maybe they should have thought about. But we'll head into X-Men Corner. Previously on X-Men. X-Men number 19. 
which uh, Vince, this is the last issue of X-Men we're getting for like eight weeks. So I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, Jonathan Hickman, Mahmoud Asrar. This is the conclusion to the Children of the Vault arc, but it's weird to say that because like nothing ever concludes in this book. We're just getting snippets of stuff. But I'm th- hoping that X-Men number 20 is like the formation of like the X-Men of Krakoa team because they had his vote on what the final member was going to be. And hopefully we get back to that. But I don't think we're ever going to get like a full like blown superhero X-Men style book. I think this is always going to be, you know, short arcs focusing on other things. But this does follow the adventures of Sink, Darwin and X-23 as they embark on their mission to learn more about the children of the vault and what's inside. Turns out they basically have spent lifetimes inside an endless cycle of imprisonment and escape. Repeat again, a uh, great line here of the first 50 years were the were the easiest. Um, essentially, from what I could understand, I think of the vault as basically a video game and that every generation, the team would move forward another level. Like every 50 to 100 years, they'd get deeper into the city of the vault and try to study those inside. Things, of course, go wrong. The team gets captured to a point where they couldn't escape. Sync does manage to, you know, do so and basically tunnel out and basically plan an escape camp that, you know, takes over the course of like 100 years or something, manages to free Laura, but Darwin is being used to make basically new children of the vault. They're using Darwin's uh, essence to basically make powers from him. So the plan is then basically like, all right, let's just get the hell out of here and let Xavier know and we can deal with this later. Through this time, though, like Sink and Laura developed a relationship too. X23 gives herself up to help Sink since he did the same for her, you know, 50 years prior. And then basically, Sink gets just outside enough to upload his knowledge to Xavier, which he succeeds in doing just in time to die at the hands of the Children of the Vault, as they're warned that the Children of the Vault are going to be coming for the X Men, and that's a threat they have to deal with, you know, later on down the line. So Sink Darwin and Laura are all reborn, but only Sink remains the memories of what happened since he was the only one that they could have made a backup data of his memory. So he's essentially been like reborn with hundreds of years of knowledge. But now like that, he just lived a whole life that was null and void. He's back to where he was before he even entered with the you know, his, his copy backup. So now he, you know, he looks at X-23 and he was like, well, I don't know if this relationship's ever going to happen again, but now I've, you know, he's a new path, life path is forged for him here where what's he going to go do next? I came out of this really liking that character. I'm curious to see what Hickman has more in store for him because it clearly he, I think he has bigger plans down the road. But I like this arc. I, I kind of like the whole like rinse, repeat, like there was kind of like a live die repeat feel to it, which is always kind of a fun, uh, fun gimmick to work with. And the art was fantastic too. So this was a pretty strong issue of X-Men, at least for me to leave off on while you got to wait eight weeks for the next one because of the delays. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously Mike's description, you know, made it clear that this is not really a conclusion to the vault story. Kind of annoying because, you know, that story was started, you know, a year and a half ago, but I mean, if you really argue, like, if you really think about it, like, essentially what Hickman is doing in this X-Men book, it's basically every issue of this is just what people talk about Claremontine, like, you know, how Claremont would, you know, drop a little hint and then he'd pick up on the story like two years later. But there's just like not the actual like consistent ongoing, you know, sagas and, and character dynamics and things like that, though this issue one of the better examples of Hickman actually understanding human emotions. And then the twist at the end, you know, 
with the kind of memory discrepancy was pretty interesting and emotional. And this is also chock full of annoying timeline graphics, which you like kind of have to read because there are, you know, events implied on those that are not shown on panel. It's not simply recapping what you're reading. But I, this yeah, a, I mean, it was fine. Yeah, I thought this was a case of like good infographic to really because it really showed like how long they were in there, all the events laid out. Like this wasn't just like I'm reading text messages. This That was like actually helpful to give yeah. a scope and feel to the overall. Event. I mean, yeah, for better or worse, in this issue, you do kind of have to read them. You kind of should read them. It's not like, you know, a lot of video games where the collectibles are like walk over here and click X. And here's like an audio dialogue, you know, like some of the Halo games or Bioshock and things like that. That's kind of how I feel a lot of times with the data pages where it's just like, here's this stupid letter, like email from Beast, which doesn't really mean anything. Like if you really want to get, you know, in the dirt and know every darn thing that's happening in Dawn of X then, or Reign of X right now, then, you know, read all that darn stuff and know every single thing. But obviously we're not reading all the books. So for me, a lot of times they're just like go away. But we're pretty yeah, damn close to reading all of them. Well, you say that. Well, we were, not. we were not anymore, but we. I, yeah, I'd we, say we read about half. It's a lot lower than you think. There's there's like a dozen ongoing. T- there's like a dozen monthly titles right now. I'm pretty oh sure. Oh my god. I I would have to say though, Vince, it seems that the X Men are causing more problems for themselves. Like. I feel like the entire Children of the Vault thing could have been like it's all Xavier's doing on sending them in there for why this happened. So I'm wondering how Hickman's going to handle like the X-Men kind of being their own enemies in ways through the Krakoan era uh, in different ways. Yeah, well, that's kind of the irony, you know, with Darwin, you know, them capturing Darwin is really them going inside the vault made the Children of the Vault a way bigger threat than they were otherwise. So. And I, th- I think we've kind of seen like a little bits of that, especially like, I mean, it's it's really the classic, well, the modern version of Professor Xavier where like, you know, his hubris and his ego are, are too large and he, he thinks he knows what's right. And so ultimately, I'm, I'm like, that's kind of what I imagine is happening. You know, we're getting Dawn of X, Reign of X, and then, you know, the third arc has to be Fall of X or something like that. But we got to get through the Hellfire Gala first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not super excited about that, but I'm excited to get some uh, nice-looking Emma Frost covers. I think, well, we talked about that in the last show or two shows ago. That doesn't really seem like it's an event. It's just kind of a, it's an event in the sense of, like, it's a line-wide thing. It's not like a 22-part crossover. Yeah, and I think it's, like, the focal point is actually in Marauders, which is one of the few books we are reading. Um, it's just, the, the other books are kind of, like, tying in, but, like, sideways tying in, not, like, read this, then read this, then read this. Right, right. But uh, let's wind the clocks back to the 90s for the, the conclusion of the Adam X story and X-Men Legends. Yes, the second issue of this series and the finale of this story arc by Vivian Niciesa and Brett Booth. After the big truth bomb at the end of last issue from Corsair that Adam X is the brother of Scott and Alex, he shoots Adam in the head. But that does nothing. And it's clarified that Adam is their half-brother, so he's the genetically engineered spawn from the Summer's uh, brother's mother and to Ken of the Shi'ar, which I'm pretty sure, I don't remember. I think uh, 
I think Gabriel might be their half, might be a half brother as well. Or no, he wasn't. You know, because she was pregnant at the time. I don't know, whatever. Because obviously, obviously, he has connections to Shiar, but I don't think he's part Shiar. So the family all teams up to take the fight to Eric the Red and the Shiar. It devolves into big action with tons of footnotes to you know '90s X-Men issues by Nicieza mostly. They're fighting also exactly where the Dark Phoenix saga, you know, that big fight happened. Honestly, I kind of tuned things out. Like once we got this many pages in, there is a great double pitch. I mean, there's other panels on the page, but it's a double pitch spread of the Imperial Guard. And then it just ends like Sinister still screwing around behind the scenes. And this literally like puts all the toys back in the box. It mind wipes every character involved. So like as a reader, we understand how Adam X is connected to Cyclops, how he is a legitimate Summers brother. But then Scott, Alex, and Adam don't remember any of this. So it's kind of really pointless. And I guess that's all you I guess that's all you could do here, like, you know, without making a huge retcon, though obviously person in charge of X-Men is going around making huge retcons all the way, you know, everywhere. But then kind of the bonus feature and, you know, for the, for the CBR and well, for the internet machines and the YouTubers and everything, this is probably the meat of the content here is we get an official by Marvel summer's family tree graphic. I'm not crazy enough as an X-Men fan, or at least not anymore to sit here and try and double check this. It'd be really funny if, you know, if someone on Reddit realizes they forgot this, this is wrong. So really, this does resolve the loose plot thread, but it changes nothing whatsoever, including Vulcan. So now there's four Summers Brothers, not not three. And uh, the next issue is X-Factor, like original X-Factor, by Walt and Louise Simonson. So I'm not certain what they may be picking up on. It's probably related something to, uh, to something in Apocalypse, maybe. But I'll definitely be picking it up. And then I'm not sure what happens after them. I don't think that's been announced yet. I think they, they said Claremont's writing something. So maybe after them, that's that's what Claremont will do. Hopefully it's not being drawn by Salvador LaRocca, but it probably will be because that seems to be the often contributor for Claremont at this point. But yeah, this was fine. I, I, I was here for the Brett Booth art, th- though I will say the panel where Cyclops is hugging Adam X looks really weird and awkward. But yeah, overall, like I had fun with it. It's... Yeah, the the mind wipe is the like the very clean slate way for us for them to go. Yeah, we said it was going to be in continuity, but we're this is the way we skirt around that. But also in my brain, it was like, wouldn't they also get their memories back in the Krakoan era anyway? So was it really a big deal in my head canon that they probably would have figured it out that they're all brothers by now, especially in that era? But we'll see how that shakes out. Not that it's important or it's important we see more of Adam X, the extreme, outside of this book. Because is there a place for him in 2021? Probably not. He's a character very much situated right in his own timeline in the 1990s. But overall, I had fun with it. I'm looking more I'm looking more forward to the Simonson's reunion on X-Factor, though. I yeah, think that'll apparently, be fun. Apparently Adam X has appeared. I don't really remember, but... I guess he must, it says he was in X-Force number 12. That may have been like a bar scene. He was probably in the background. There's been, so, in X-Force. Yeah. There's been a lot of cameos in the bar, so that's probably where he was. And so, then uh, apparently he's been in X-Factor, which we don't read. 
Uh, I read the first three issues. When it started tying into Exus Swords, I dropped out. But hopefully, Dan Dan declined the the first two issues of X Men Legends. Well, we'll probably grab them when uh, the Simonsons come on for for issues three and four. We'll see. But I'll take us into the Flash number seven sixty eight, which was my big hyped book this week because it's Wally West back in the forefront. This is Jeremy Adams, and then artists on this: Brandon Peterson, Marco Santucci, and David Lafuente. Hey guys, Wally West is finally back as the fastest man alive. The cover of this book exclaims, but the opening pages see him quitting the Justice League of America, then wanting to cut his connection to the Speed Force. DC, please stop doing this to me. As a Wally West fan, I I feel that I can't have nice things for more than five minutes. Anyhow, Barry and Wally have to do this race to cut his connection to the Speed Force so he can just, you know, go be his dad to you know go be a father to his kids and and a husband to his wife who they're back now and that's awesome just to see to see them all back after years um but i i feel like i'm going crazy here but they like they do this race that and then he gets hit by this like energy rave which knocks him into the jurassic era as barry then and mr terrific are trying to reach him through communications to the speed force you get some speed raptor hijinks and some Flintstones callbacks here with Wally running through and trying to escape. Apparently his mind is being placed in the past bodies of speedsters and that's what he's inhabiting here. Uh, so whatever happened to this energy wave is transporting him through time and other bodies of speedsters and he's trying to get home. So as the start of the series finally has Wally in the spotlight, this isn't really what I wanted because the end of this sees him getting thrown into the future where he's now occupying the body of Bart Allen, which I don't like. How does that work? Because it shouldn't Bart be in the present because of young justice. I don't know. Time doesn't work like that. I'm going to go cross out if I think too hard, but yeah, as a Wally West fan, this is not what I wanted in the first issue in him finally being back as the true fastest man alive, the flash. I, I just wanted some Cape shit. Like, I I don't know why I can't just have him in that red costume and fighting some of the rogues. I don't want to go on this spiritual journey with him where he's going to have to learn that he does want his powers and that he doesn't, you know, have to get back to the present. Just give me him in the costume beating up bad guys. That's all I want at this point. Also, you know, having to be reminded that Heroes in Crisis is canon doesn't help me. Green Arrow doesn't like Wally because he killed Roy, which I mean, he doesn't know that Roy's back yet. So, I mean, that's fair though, but I just want Wally doing superhero stuff and not starting out with a romp through time and then possibly, you know, getting a team up with gold beetle three artists on this book with three different colorists. I get what they're trying to go for. So every era has a different artist, but it comes off really busy and not as concise as it could be to me. The whole deal will probably just be for an arc, like I said, of Wally seeing, you know, realizing he doesn't want to give up his powers and hopefully then he can start, you know, doing superhero stuff. There's definitely a fun factor here. And I think Jeremy Adams is embracing that and finding his voice for the characters. It's everything else that makes me kind of want to throw my hands up because this isn't what I want. I just want Wally fighting rogues. It's been over 10 years and I mean, I'm begrudgingly going to stick around because it's Wally West in the spotlight. And he's my favorite DC character. But even though Barry's in half the book, I think the balance is fine there. But 
I guess nowhere to go up from here. Like I just, I'm going to have to stomach this, this first arc. Hopefully it's not like six issues because by that point I will truly probably have fallen off the bus and not care. But overall I thought it was fine, but this isn't what I want with Wally West finally being back in the spotlight. What'd you guys think of flash number seven sixty eight? Yeah. I'm pretty similar thoughts. I mean, the speed force power of the last raptor kind of cool. Some of the, some, like, when he initially shows up in that timeline, it was giving me like a little bit of a power of the atom vibes and the art. Like I, I can't really decide how I felt about the art. Like in certain moments, like in that one splash, when Barry and Wally start, essentially I'm like, Oh, this looks really cool. Like it kind of has like a Jesus size, probably not pronounced wrong. Like kind of has that kind of look. Um, you named a bunch of people. Like I, I also couldn't find the credits page. I don't know if I skipped over it, if it was in the front or the back, but I don't know how that breaks down because you named three people and like, I couldn't tell that it was three people, but it also, but it also wasn't super consistent. So I don't know what's going on on the art side. And then, yeah, like it's a fun story. Like as far as what goes down, you know, like he's in the past fighting dinosaurs as a caveman. And then he's in, you know, Bart's body and way in the future, but you know, what it's leading to and what it's picking up from, I'm not really interested in. And like, we see, like, I don't think Linda has a line here. Like it's, there's Barry, Wally and Linda on a page. She has like a line of dialogue, like a ton of panels, but we don't really hear much from her. And then we see the kids as babies in flashback in one panel on the first page. So we also don't really get much of the family angle at all, even though that's what Wally's trying to go get to. So you think they, you know, they'd want to show us a little bit of context of that to show us why he's so invested, you know, to give up the, you know, give up the boots and, you know, lean on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys said a lot of stuff. I don't really know how I feel about this. Some, like, I think you mentioned something about it, Mike. The art here just feels very like, I don't know if it's bad. I just I don't know how to describe it. It's just something about it. Well, it's three different artists, and like I know what they're going for. The Jurassic, I, I can't remember who does what, but there's a different artist for the Jurassic period. There's a different artist for the future, and then we have the stuff in the present. The stuff yeah. in the present is the stuff that has the the Jesus Sayas uh, kind of feel to it, which I'm I'm still mixed on by itself for the way a flash book is going to look. I don't necessarily know if I want my flash book to look like that. But yeah, I really just, can I just have the red costume with the white eyes and him doing superhero stuff? Like, I don't want yeah. this. There's like a, please. It's been, it has been 10 years. Just give me what I want. <laughs> There's like a little like chin strap. He has like a little chin piece that comes up. That's Barry. Barry yeah. has the chin That's strap. Weird. Well, also, isn't Barry supposed to be with the totality? Like he's still sticking around, I guess. He's never truly going to be gone because they can't get rid of both of them. But like, don't market this as Wally West, but also like half the book is still Barry. And you can make the debatable claim that Barry is still more in the forefront than Wally West is in this. But I'm sure that'll change as the arc goes on. But yeah, I, I guess it's I, I wanted this book to be my pick of the week, because if you remember back to Speed Metal, that was the moment where it was like, I got what I wanted back. And now this is DC going, that's eh, not really what you want. So, uh, and then the end, and then the tease at the very end is a, is a 
is relying on you knowing things from future state the the gold beetle character was in yeah future state yeah and we already know how we all felt about future state the gold beetle seems fun but i where is captain cold where is mere master where are jay and iris where is linda park like let can we build that foundation before we start you know goofing off in different time travel stuff it seems that I, going longer than I want to on this, but I felt like this was going to be the book I was talking about the longest this week. But like, remember when the flash told stories and wasn't just a conduit for doing stuff in the time stream, because that seems like that's all we get now, which that's yeah. my other issue, but all right, I got nothing else. I'm going to keep reading it because it's Wally West, but Shadecraft number one. Yes, so another number one issue by Image, I believe. Um, our next issue, uh, as Mike says, J. Craft number one, written by Joe Henderson, art by Lee Garber, um, colors by Antonio Fabella. So in Joliet, uh, Illinois, our main character is Zadie, who is, or Zadie, I don't know how you want to pronounce that, uh, who is walking home with her friend Josh, who she kisses on accident, thinking he was about to kiss her. But he actually just remembered that he left his Nintendo Switch at her house or something. I think he said, like, I left your, my Switch at your house. She runs away in, in embarrassment and is attacked by a giant shadow. Roll credits, I guess. Uh, the, the next day at school, uh, Zadie is still creeped out by the shadow, becoming known as Crazy Zadie after, like, um, some of the kids pick on her and, like, shine a flashlight on her and think that's a shadow and then she goes crazy and then they post a video on YouTube and embarrass her. Back at home, Zadie is by bed her uh, can't talk today. <laughs> Zadie is by the bedside with her brother Ricky, who is in a coma from a car accident. Uh, she is very sad about her brother and um, you know, kind of upset that he's she's pretty much accepted that he's not coming back and runs away into this really sketchy forest where Zadie runs into, guess what, another shadow monster again. Uh, this time, though, that she is saved by another monster who is revealed to be her brother, Ricky. So this was a great first issue. I love the premise. Um, it's a little bit basic, but I'm willing to see where it goes. Uh, I think Zadie's an interesting character. This whole idea of her brother being a shadow monster, I think, is kind of interesting. Uh, the art, especially with the shadows, I thought was very clean and vibrant. Very good colors going on here in this issue. But um, yeah, I'm on for issue two. Uh, what do you guys think? I would say I, I would say it was good, not great. Uh, the characters and the tone uh, are what's going to keep me staying here. And also, I really like Lee Garbett's art. Um, that's uh, that's another strong point here. Uh, this this is a really good team though. Um, no, I liked it. Yeah, I liked the art. Um, I liked the design of the main character and Lee Garbett's like pretty good with like kind of face acting uh, with her. Yeah, I'm I'm into it. This is the team that their previous book at Image was called Skyward, and actually the hardcover for it came out a while back. I, I just received mine. I, I never read the series, but I figured I, I heard good things about it, so I figured oh, I'll pre-order the hardcover. Yeah, and I, I've I I've never read it, but I know it was a good book that had got like good notoriety and traction. So, same team here carries the carries it with through. So now I definitely want to go back and check out Skyward because I like this. But 
we'll yeah, jump Henderson, into our image. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, just real quick. Henderson is from TV. Um, I think he's connected to... Luc I think he was a showrunner or a writer for Lucifer um, and some other things. Interesting. All right, we'll go to our second image book, Crossover, and then we'll wrap this up with a retro. The fifth issue, Crossover by Diane Cates, Jeff Shaw, Pete Kniff on colors. So there's, a, there's like a superhero who's dropped off at one of these prison complexes, but he has a bomb stitched into his chest. So he blows up the prison, and that gives us another excuse for a bunch of characters, copyrighted characters in silhouette. You know, we see Superman, Thor, Wolverine, all kinds of others. And they're all rushing off to the dome to try and get back in. But they don't know how, and the military is chasing after them, so it's kind of riling up a war. And our team of characters leave the museum with the God Country sword in tow to try and get to the dome and open it. And now that that prison exploded, there's a lot of urgency because they're also trying to you know, prevent a bunch of supers and humans from dying. And a bunch of Frankenstein amalgams uh, which was set up in a previous issue, kind of blocked their path. So then they have a little fight. Uh, Madman ha hands Ellie the sword, and as part of that, she kind of gets like a wash of emotion, of uh, memories, every everyone that the sword has been connected to. So we see a montage of scenes of both God Country and Madman, kind of clever, you know, meta, you know, artistic moment. And then the little girl who's kind of been the you know, the thrust of this story, Ava, she goes all Super Saiyan Phoenix mode and she's like shooting red lightning everywhere and killing people. And everyone's like, stop that kid. Go, she's going crazy. And so the wimpy preacher's son, who threw the Molotov early in the story at the comic shop, he pulls out his special kryptonite bullet to shoot her. And that's where the cliffhanger ends. It's still fun. Definitely modern style comic without, you know, this this issue on its own is, doesn't feel like a full story, which again is like every comic, but it's kind of been what I've been adjusting to the last couple issues because the first issue I felt like, you know, really gave us a lot of meat and maybe even the second one and, you know, really brought us into the world, introduced a ton of characters, kind of told a full story, you know, in in the capsula, capsulated you know, perspective, but also obviously leading some more stuff. And we've, you know, the story has been advancing, but we've kind of slowed down and a little bit more drip feed uh, as we go on, but it's still good. Yeah, still good, but I don't think this is on the level of where we're, we're enjoying it from issues like one and two. I think there's definitely been a dip, uh, though, it, though it feels like it hasn't rose to that big like oh shit moment from like oh there's madman from issue three i mean the seeing the god country sword is still pretty cool but not having read god country a lot of the the wow factor i feel for us is not quite there but it's it's still exciting to see how donny cates is going to try to pull as much as he can in there but and this issue has a really good cliffhanger too as the focus is now shifting to the preacher's son character who's kind of been in the background the last two issues so i imagine he's going to take a more forefront and the next two issues, we, as I guess we, you know, flip between between him and some of the other characters here. I am happy that Madman's still long for the ride. Isn't one of the covers for this like Savage Dragon, also? So like, I'm I'm assuming uh, that Eric Larson's going to be like, yeah, you can use him. So well, we'll that, yeah, that's one of the upcoming issues. Um, it's on FOC this weekend, so I made sure to 
mate let my comic shop know to grab me one, mostly just so I can cut off the cover and put it in a Savage Dragon custom bind 10 years from now. So you're not buying two, you're only buying the one? No, just one, because I don't, I don't mean crossover is good, but I don't necessarily need the physical issue for crossover numbers six or seven or whatever it is. I don't even know you're what gonna, it is. You're going to kick yourself in 15 years when crossover is a movie and then the issue goes for tons of money. Maybe. All right, we'll bring Dan back. It's our final book. It's our retro. Red Robin, number 18 from February 2011. This one was picked by our friend Nelson. He chose this one for us this week. Shout out to Nelly. There you go. So yeah, our next issue here, our retro issue, is Red Robin number 18, written by Fabian Nicieza, art by Marcus Toe, and inks by Ray McCarthy. So Red Robin is in Moscow doing some undercover work looking for Lonnie Mackin to help in cracking the internet, which is kind of like a database that searches for superheroes, I think, or superpowered beings. Uh, he runs into Red Star, who kind of looks like a Heineken beer bottle. Um, I know that's like a weird thing to think about, but uh, I'm interested to see what my co-hosts think about that. The next day, Tim is slated to meet Mikalik with his assistant, Tam. Uh, the meeting is ambushed by a woman who is after Mikalek and is trying to kill him for some reason. So Red Star shows up again, Heineken Man, I guess, <laughs> and the woman gets away, but not before Red Robin can place a tracker on her. Uh, he follows her to a shady warehouse where he kind of creeps on her taking a shower and fights her while naked. Uh, and then she just puts on clothes and they just start talking, which I think was a little weird. Uh, they share information about Mikalek uh, again until Red Star shows up again for like the third time in this issue this guy just never goes away so red star reveals that mika lake has been involved with the society uh that red robin has kind of been like tracking i guess for this mission and he's able to escape into a ship that has a crap ton of missiles in it and just as he realizes about like everything that's going on we get all of our heroes passing out like this this woman that was trying to kill Mikalek or whatever, however you say his name. Um, she passes out, Tam passes out, Red Robin passes out, and they're all kind of left to like, you know, like something like fried on their like headset or something. I don't know what it was. And uh, the end of the issue says, you'll have to read next issue to find out what happens next. So maybe on another retro week, we'll actually read um, Red Robin number 19. So Fingers crossed, but I thought this was an interesting issue. The art was, I, th I thought it was pretty good. Uh, there's obviously a lot of stuff that I'm missing story-wise here, but overall I thought it was intriguing, and yeah. All right, well, it, we got to play that game, Dan. Do you know who these characters are? Um, I don't know who Heineken Man is, so. All right, well, they tell you that he was a former member of the Teen Titans. So, do you know who Red Robin is? It's a very subpar um, chain fast food restaurant. <laughs> so, do you know who Red Robin is? Yes, I do. Tim Drake, right? Okay, yes, that's Tim Drake. Okay. Yes. Lonnie Machen was formerly Anarchy. Okay. So, he's working with him. And then Tam is Tamara Fox, who is Lucius Fox's daughter. Okay. 
So there you go. This is this is in the era where Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne are Batman and Robin. Damian Wayne kicked out Tim Drake, and now Tim's on his own, doing his own stuff across the world. He's kind of taken over the globe-trotting uh, aspect of Batman during this era. This is also, I think, right when Batman Incorporated. So Bruce was back by this point. Uh, this book started with Chris Yost writing, and then Fabian Nicieza took over. Um, and I don't think I ever got super far. I definitely read the beginning of this run with the stuff with Ra's al Ghul, but I don't think I ever got super deep to the parts where uh, Nicieza took over. So I've never read this before. But yeah, he's you know doing the covert stuff of tracking this Russian businessman for information, and all right, he's got to have the the weird skirt around like, Hey, red star, you're my friend, but also like, uh, you can't do anything cause you're government sponsored hero here. Stuff with that art wise. This is about like the, the how, if there is a house style to DC in 2011, this is kind of what it would be. It's not Marcus toes, not going to wow you. He's not going to draw anything bad. It's going to be fine. The Ray McCarthy inks is fine too. Overall, it's a fine, issue in 2011 that was written by Fabian Nicieza for Tim Drake. And the last time Tim Drake's had a book to, to himself uh, since then. So I, I actually think the series is pretty slept on by people. The trades are very hard to find now. Yeah, I don't have much to add, except that I had all the trades, but I swear to God, something happened and one of them disappeared. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure it's somewhere in some box, but I don't know what happened to it. Very frustrating. Is that all you uh, have to add? <laughs> Yeah, not really. I mean, this is, I'm pretty sure this is, this is like a different version of Red Star, isn't it? It's like a younger version of Red Star that's more in line with like the Tim Drake era Titans. Yeah. Not, I don't think this is the original Red Star, you know, from, you know, Wolfman Perez, new team. No, it's Titans. a new one. The shower scene, like, kind of dated. Like, it's I don't dated. know that, I don't know that they do that today. Actually, no, this is the original Red Star. Okay. Oh, it is. Okay. Hmm. I'm pretty certain. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, the it was fine. Yeah, like it. That's yeah. It's a fine issue. From this is like right before the new Fifty Two happens. We're a few months out from it really taking shape. Maybe like a maybe half a year or so. Yeah, but. I think the series only runs like in the low twenties, so we're pretty close. What uh. What cover month was this? February? It, it was right before the white the white backgrounds because that was the back matter material on the back of this was the advertising of those. This is February 2011. I believe the cover date for Justice League number one is August. But then yeah. the like full onslaught of books is September, October. Yeah, because that only only Justice League came out that first week the new fifty two started. But all right. Picks the week, gentlemen. We kind of ran a little bit long, but what what do you have? What do you have? Someone go first. Um, I'll go first. I think I usually do. I'm gonna give it to Beta Ray Bill. Okay. Same. That's a that's a hat trick. I'm also going Beta Ray Bill. So back to doing new issues. We got a consensus. All three picking Beta Ray Bill as our as our book of the week, which is pretty fun. We'll be back with you next week for more comic reviews. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Adios. Mm-hmm.